In my plan, I was supposed to be in Abuja today, speaking to Muslim background believers, and I've been in touch with them this morning and send greetings to them. It's quite a remarkable story of how many of them have come to find Isa, which is Jesus in the Muslim tradition, as their personal savior. But in the sovereign will of God, I'm here. Humanly, I'm here because my lady, who's not been with us for eight and a half months, and she misses coming to church dreadfully, has got a significant troublesome parathyroid. We see the surgeon tomorrow. If you're prompted tomorrow afternoon, please pray that that will go smoothly, that there'll be a commitment to surgery, and that is partly that that will then release me back into the ministry God's called me to. We are confident God has, has his hands on the timing of all of that, but as our family, we would value your prayers. I'm looking forward to meeting Luke. He was a Gentile, he was a doctor, uh, I don't know what his writing was like. I know that's a horrible caricature of medical people. But his Greek, I'm told, I'm not a linguist, uh, his Greek was brilliant. But if you look at the Acts of the Apostles and if you look at the Gospel of Luke, those two books that he certainly wrote, you'll see something striking. He's what we call in academic circles a contextual historian. In other words, he wants to tell the story, but he wants to set it in context. And he is brilliant at it. And if you look at uh, the gospel, and if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, he starts in exactly the same way. He sets the context, he paints the history, and then something remarkable happens. In the gospel, you see the Spirit of God coming down on the body of the incarnate Godhead, even Jesus Christ. Right? You with me? You go into the Acts of the Apostles in exactly the same way, and we're looking at that passage this morning. The only thing that's changed is Jesus has moved his body. Are you with me? Jesus has moved his body. And you are now the body of Christ. The church wasn't birthed at the Feast of Pentecost. The church had been called out. It's the kahal in Hebrew, the, es uh, the ecclesia, the called out body. It was there, but it was empowered on this day. And we're going to think about it this morning in the next two hours, which has to be compressed into 30 minutes. And I've just started, so I've got 30. No, I haven't. It's the festival of weeks in the Jewish tradition. 50 days after Passover, which is why you get Pentecost, Penta, you Latin scholars, 50. 50 days after the Passover, and this was one of the three feasts that every Jew was expected to be at. There are others, the seven feasts, but they were expected to be there. And so they were there. It was the celebration of the Jewish uh, harvest festival, festival of weeks in Jewish tradition. But the unique thing about the Jewish 
uh, festival then was that they celebrated the giving of the law. And I simply want to point out to you that when God gave the law, 3,000 people died, if you know your Old Testament. And when God gave the Spirit, 3,000 people were saved. Isn't that profound? The difference between law and grace. They were praying. Nine o'clock. Now we, Rachel and I had our prayer time. We had our prayer time at quarter past seven this morning. The Jews, and a lot of people do in other parts of the culture around this world, don't say personal prayers. I'm not discouraging you from saying personal prayers. In fact, I'm encouraging you to do that. But they're in their culture. They used to gather together. Every morning they would gather, certainly on a feast day, at nine o'clock was the first Jewish prayer in the temple. Which is why I'm going to argue in a moment that this happening happened in the temple, not in the upper room, as some people think. Though you can still cling to that if you think that's right. I've said it wasn't in the upper room for the simple reason that I think it was actually in a portico of the temple. Because at nine o'clock, all of them and remember the scriptures tell us they kept on in their Jewish tradition of prayer, they would always be at the temple at nine o'clock. And they were praying. They had their heads full of theology and Bible knowledge. They were united, the scriptures tell us. And something wonderful happened. And I'm going to try and address that topic under four headings. In fact, I'm only going to do three of them. Richard Whitney next week is going to do the uh, third one. I have his permission to stray very, very slightly into his material uh, because otherwise what I'm saying doesn't make any sense. We're going to talk about the experience. We're going to talk about the excitement. We're going to talk about the explanation, which I'll hint at. And you will all be here next week. Regrettably, I'm preaching elsewhere. But you'll all be here to hear what Richard has to say about the explanation. And then I want to come to exhortation. The experience. I've told you there were men and women already with their hearts united, loving each other. And it was nine o'clock. And mystical experiences don't happen at nine o'clock. I'm reliably informed. I've had some slightly mystical experiences, but they never happened in the morning. They always happened at night. But just think about it. It was nine o'clock in the morning. They were cold sober, not as they were suggested, drunk. And they heard something. And they saw something. And they did something. And I want to think about that just very quickly. They heard something. It was a gale that was not outside the building. It was actually inside the building. Now, I've been in, a, in Nigeria. I've been in a house that literally had its roof blown off by a gale. And I think sometimes, and I've been guilty of it myself, we speak about the gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit 
And he is a gentle, still, small voice. But sometimes, sometimes he's that powerful, dynamic, earth-shattering Spirit of God coming to us. There's two different words in Greek for breath. One of them is the normal soft breathing that you and I do. And there is a second word for hard breathing. You know, when you hear that intensity in the, in the breathing, it's the word ruach. And it's powerful. And when the wind of God comes, and the wind of God is a person, is a spirit, it's Jesus incarnate in the spirit. No, that's bad theology. It's the spirit coming and it's powerful. Do you remember Ezekiel? Do you remember the vision he had in chapter 37? All those dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, and it's worth looking at Ezekiel in the term, terms of what's happening eschatologically in the world. You look at Ezekiel, God says to him, can these bones live? Do you know what the answer is? The answer is they can live. But they can only live with the wind, the power, the person of God coming upon them. What about Nicodemus? Jesus and Nicodemus? Where's the wind come from? Where does it go to? Well, the Spirit's a little bit like that, but very powerful. Not soft as the breath of even as a hymn has it, but powerful and productive and life-changing. Billy Graham, at the end of his Haringey Arena success, set out to minister in Scotland. And these Scots are very doer people, he thought and had been told. I know that's not true from personal experience. But as they were traveling up by train, they were on their knees in a British rail carriage praying for this time in Scotland. Was it Kelvin Hall? Kelvin Hall. And suddenly, the biographer tells us there was a wind in the very, very carriage they were. And they knew that God was equipping them and releasing them for what was a very, very humanly successful. And that's what the Spirit does. That's what they heard on that day. What did they see? They saw supernatural fire. I find it interesting that God sort of turned up in all the various forms by which we know him from the Old Testament. He turned up as wind, he turned up as fire. Do you remember Moses? Do you remember the pillar of fire that led them? Do you remember Elijah? So God is fire. He's wind. He's fire. It speaks of power and purity and passion, of course. But the fire came down from heaven as one flame. 
And then it separated and rested on each of the people who were there. Can I say something very profound? Not because I'm saying it. There is an obsession in Western cultural individualistic society that is obsessed with the Holy Spirit and me. What happened there was profound because they didn't see the Spirit on them. They saw the Spirit on other people. Right? I'm saying something so important if you can grasp it. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a vital personal interest in knowing that the Spirit is in you and on you and through you. But you will recognize, I speak from a world, in a world context, you will recognize the Spirit of God more clearly in others than you ever recognize it in yourself. Is that too hard to receive? You take it away and think about it. It's profound, not because I said it, but it's profound <coughs> because it's true. I was preaching in Kiburu, a refugee camp in Kenya, about seven years ago. I think I was fairly visible, the only white face in a sea of black faces. And Kenya's had its struggles this week, if you follow the news at all. And I preached. I was totally unaware of anything other than the passion and the sense that I knew what God had given me to say. And I said it. Some non-Christians in the crowd came to the pastor who I was with, Joseph Carici, and said, what was that bright shining light surrounding that man who was preaching? And it was, it was God. So God can be experienced, he can be heard, he can be felt in wind and in fire. But what did he do? What did the Spirit do? Now the scholars go, the scholars get themselves into a, a terrible twist here, uh, and I've read about 30 or 40 different scholars' interpretation of this. They speak about ecstatic gibberish. Some. In fact, all that happened is so simple, but so profound, which is God bypassed their minds and their intellects. I mean, I think I can speak about 40 languages in terms of greeting people. My wife has a question about whether I even speak one, one language correctly. She says I speak Faroese, which is, I know what she means. But God came by his spirit, bypassed their minds, and there's a reason for that I'll come to. And what they heard, the people, it wasn't, you see, the coming of the spirit was not primarily for the disciples, well it was at one level, but it was a much, much bigger issue that was at stake. It was for the disciples to equip them to be witnesses, but it was for the people to hear, because as Richard will explain to us next week, 
everyone needed to hear in their own language. I have a lot of connections with Wycliffe translators. I'm in regular touch with them. And they tell me there are 6,000 languages in the world. Right? Well, I think I speak one reasonably coherently. There are languages of angels and tongues if you want to be true to the scripture as well. But I want to let you into a very profound secret this morning. Uh, the God is not an Englishman. Right? Mind you, he's not a Scot. And he's not Welsh. And he's not Brazilian. And he's not Indonesian. God can speak every single language in the whole world. Thank God he can. Because he has to listen to the prayers. I've got Muslim background believers, in, pastors in Abuja, and they will be speaking in Falani. They will be speaking in Hausa, of which I have a smattering. But God understands them perfectly. But people get themselves all tied up here for the very simple reason that they don't understand what God was doing and why he was doing it. Because what was actually happening is that they were speaking to God. They were speaking to God. They were praising God. Now everyone in the world, sinner and saint alike, is a prayer. Everyone. Right? Godless people pray. But the point at issue here is this is not prayer. This is praise. And Joel had said, when the Spirit of God comes upon people, they will learn to praise God for the wonder of his actions and for who he is. John Smith last week was talking about the great compulsion that's added to the Great Commission. And I have to live with the fact that while part of my heart would want to be in Abuja today, part of, part of my heart is deeply here too as well. Because when the love of God is upon us and in us and through us by his spirit, that great compulsion leads to the great commission. And I'll point out to you one other thing, which I think is important. And it's this, that there's absolutely no reference to the feelings of the disciples. Again, let me have a little cultural rant. People in the Western individualistic world get obsessed about feelings. If you watch a BBC interviewer, how did you feel about? Yes. Yeah, you've heard it before. It's, it's, it's our culture. It's sickening in one sense. But feelings are actually important, but they're not the center of what the thing is. And there's no reference to the feelings of the disciples in this situation. Reference to the feeling of the crowd will come to them in a moment. You see, you need to judge every spiritual experience by the fact and by the fruit, not by the feelings. Yeah? You need to judge every experience of God that you think has come from God by the fact, by the fruit of that, 
not by the feelings. Now, please don't think, don't come lynching me afterwards and say that God and feelings are opposite. No, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will know intense reaction and feeling. Of course. I'm simply saying that is not the focus. Not the focus. So remember, spiritual experiences need to be judged by the fact and the fruit, not by the feelings. The excitement, it degenerates. I don't know if you've ever been in a very, very volatile crowd where something dramatic happens. I've had that privilege on many occasions. And it's fascinating. Group dynamics and crowd dynamics are really interesting to see what people do and how they react and all of that side of things. The people, the crowd, of course, were Jews of the dispersion. There were three million people in, um, in Jerusalem at the time. And I've had the privilege of being there a number of times. How on earth they ever get three million people in Jerusalem? Well, they don't. They live out on the hillsides around and in the villages around. But they were in there for the feast, three million of them. There were Jews of the dispersion, many of them. You saw all the places, north, south, east and west were covered. They were expected to be there and they were there for the feast. There were proselytes, those who had actually uh, committed themselves to the Jewish faith. In the male sense, they'd been circumcised and they were committed to the law. There were also devout, God-fearing men, people who stopped short of circumcision, I understand that, and actually went in for a commitment to the Jewish law. And all of them were there to hear what actually went on. What did they think? Well, some of them were curious. Some of them were surprised. Some of them were absolutely amazed. There's some wonderful words in the message that you read. And I got Dave to read the message because the danger is you're so familiar with the text in the NIV that the actual force of the Greek doesn't grab you. And Eugene certainly does that for us in the message. Some were fearful. Anything dramatic and, uh, quote, spiritual and, quote, mystical will obviously generate fear for some people. It depends on their personalities. They were perplexed. And of course, there was the honest Joe who said, oh, it's simple, they're drunk. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anything to do with drunk people. When I was doing my theology degree at Manchester University, I uh, drove a taxi at night through the whole night. So I know something about drunken behavior, right? I know something that drink tends to release singing. It also releases vomit, but that's another story. You can <laughs> imagine where I might want to go with that. But drinking releases the deep inner wells. And of course, the deep inner wells are often sad and sick and very sinful. That's why drunkenness is a no-no for Christians. Very clear. But they were full of the Spirit and they seemed to be drunk. 
So we've thought about the experience, we've thought about the excitement. The crowd, yeah, was excited. Next week, Richard is going to talk about the explanation. And it's so simple. There's an awful lot of theology for uh, Richard to get involved in and for you to get involved in. But fundamentally, he was simply saying, Peter, boldly and coherently, he was simply saying, this is what God had promised through Joel. don't know if many of you have read Joel's, I was going to say Joel's gospel, but actually it was Joel's gospel in a sense. Because in the heart of the small prophecy, there are powerful pictures, but there are two things. Richard will expand these next week for us. One is the simple but profound truth that all people are now within the remit of God's grace and love. All people. So if I was in Abuja tonight, with all the black faces in front of me. God loves them. God loves the Indonesians. God loves the Brazilians. God actually loves the English as well, which is an even more of a surprise to me sometimes. But God loves all people. And he wants to give the Spirit to all people, right? 40 times, I think, someone will correct me if I'm wrong. 40 times in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people. But never to abide and never to remain, it was only passing. But here, the Spirit has come and he has come to abide. And the other thing, and again, Richard will expound this. It's very simple. Here's the gospel. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Say it with me, come on, let's do pantomime. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. That's what you've got to present. Out in Abuja, here in Bridge North, in your office, in your factory. So I come finally, which is outside my remit. But I can't preach like this and not finally, fourthly, exhort you. Because we've done a lot, done a lot on the Spirit, haven't we? The gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. I want to simply say some things as I finish, and you must respond to them. The Holy Spirit's a person, right? Alos parakletos. Another one exactly like Jesus. So don't tell me you have a problem with the Spirit. If you have a problem with the Spirit, you have a problem with Jesus. Right? Don't draw a distinction between the two. Don't divide the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one in character. You might think this is needless to say, but I'll tell you it's the seat of many problems for people in their spiritual development. Don't divide the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is Allah, another of exactly the type of Jesus. You're to receive him. Have you received the Spirit? 
You're to rely on him. You're to respond to him. Scripture tells us, and I don't know whether it's here, I don't think I have preached on it here, there's two negative things in Scripture that it tells us about the Spirit, or two negative instructions. The first one is don't quench the Spirit. Right? If the Spirit impels you and empowers you and envisions you to do something, don't quench it. I know about quenching. I've put enough fires out with buckets of water in the bush in Africa. It's better to trust and to, leap and to step forward and to find you were wrong than simply to be frozen by inactivity for fear that you might be wrong. God finds it much easier to forgive you than to impel you in to respond to what he wants. Thought I ought to hear an amen for that. He does. Don't quench the spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. Listen, all of us are in relationships. I mean, some of us are married, but all of us are in relationships. And I tell you, if I have grieved my wife, I will know about it. Not just by her reaction. I hope there's enough sensitivity in me to know I've done something wrong or something's gone wrong. The best piece of advice I ever had, probably the only piece I had as I got married, 170 years ago it feels like, was don't go to bed on your anger. Say sorry. See, the Africans are great at this. They say sorry. And when they say sorry, they don't mean sorry, it was my fault. They're saying sorry, something's happened. Let's sort it out. Don't grieve the spirit. You're to walk in the Spirit. Walking's easy, right? Isn't it? Just one step in front of another. Walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Or live in the Spirit, equally translated uh, from the Greek. But I guess the key one, and interesting that it was referred to by the listening group, was be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. It's imperative in the tense in Greek. It's a command. Not, look, here's a piece of good advice. Do it! Be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's not something you do, but you've got to present yourself as a recipient. Be filled. Bad translation. It's present continuous tense in Greek. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Every single morning, as Rachel and I go through our morning <coughs> Celtic devotions, we ask God to fill us afresh with his Spirit. And God gives the Spirit, Jesus said, to those who ask and to those who obey. Okay? Obey. And if we're going to be a truly and I've left myriads of stuff out, but I'll leave that one with the Lord. If we're going to be truly a missional church, we will need to know something of this experience personally, or a great deal about it, all of the time. Because if you're going to be missional, do you remember bells? 
You're going to be truly missional. You need to be impelled by God. Not impelled by this man, skilled as he is at doing it. Not impelled by your home group leader, but impelled by God. He's the one in your workplace, in your home, in your office, in your factory, in the things that pertain to me that will impel you to be the people of God. And I finish by saying this, the obvious but still needs to be said. It needs to be your doings, not your sayings. I'm dealing with a situation where a young man had come to faith and he came to speak to me. This is way down in Bath. And he came to speak to me and said, John, I have been a Christian now for, for nine months. And he says, I'm wondering if I ought to say something to my colleagues. And I don't know what he thought I was going to say. But I was very naughty. I said, for God's sake, don't say anything. If they don't know something's happened, nothing's happened yet. He did forgive me for my directness. But please let your words and your works speak of the power of the Holy Spirit.